I begin this final session with a word or two about a portrait that hangs in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, done by a 17th century Dutch master. It's entitled, in English, its title would be The Candlestick. And it depicts a table around which there are a large variety of men. On the table, one thing, a candlestick, in which there is a candle and lit. Around the table, as you look at the men, if you know anything about what we call the iconography or the pictures of the various reformers, you'll see the various reformers there around the table. Um, Cramner and the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury and Melanchthon and uh, Butzer and so on. At the center, Calvin and Luther. And on the wall behind them, a variety of pictures of other reformers, including the medieval pre-reformers, men like Jan Hus and John Wycliffe. The picture graphically demonstrates what the Reformation was about. It was the unveiling of light after centuries of darkness. It graphically depicts in oil what that Reformation wall, if you know that wall in Geneva where there is in sculpture, uh, sculpted forms of the leading reformers. At the center, the major reformers in uh, Geneva, Calvin, Farel, Vire, and Theodore Beza. And then on either side of those four central figures, the Latin on one side, post tenebris, on the other, lux. After darkness, light. If one were to ask more specifically, what was light shed on? Probably a number of areas could come to mind. Christian marriage was rediscovered. Um, clearly, the doctrine of salvation was rediscovered. That's at the heart of the Reformation. But also, worship. Calvin himself could say, when asked the question about the necessity of the Reformation, it was necessary, he would argue, because of the issue of worship. There was a rediscovery of the simplicity, to some degree, of New Testament worship. The reformer Calvin could say that part of the reverence that we owe to God consists in worshiping him as he commands. And so as we think then about worship, we are thinking about something that was central to the Reformation and has been central to the Reformed faith down through the years. Again, the Westminster Confession of Faith could say this in article, chapter 21, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. In fact, so pervasive did this perspective on worship have in the Reformed tradition that if one went to Calvinist Geneva and to St. Peter's to hear Calvin preach, or in the following century you went to Paris to the great Huguenot temple or temple where Pierre Dumoulin preached in the 1630s, or if you crossed the channel to hear one of the great Puritan preachers like Richard Baxter or John Owen. Or in the next century, 
you went to Northampton to hear Jonathan Edwards. Or in England, the revival preacher, William Grimshaw, Anglican. Or John Newton in Olney. Or in his ministry in London. Or in the following century, Adolphe Monod in Paris. Or Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. There would be differences, language differences. There would be difference of costume. But in terms of the shape of worship, there was a common consensus of the sort of things that were done in worship and sung. Differences on one issue, as we will see. All of that, in the last 40 years, has broken down. Since the 1960s, uh, to name an era, there's been a radical departure from a long heritage of a Reformed perspective on worship. Now, in the short time I have, I'm opening up a huge issues. We live in a day of what some writers have described as worship wars. And uh, at the school where I teach, we just had a whole conference of three days on the issue of worship. So please, uh, uh, you will forgive me if I don't cover the issues that exactly that you might expect to be covered in this session. It is a big, big topic, exactly how should we worship. It is critical to note, though, this commonality that did prevail that no longer prevails. Now, what kind of elements of worship? And I'm, I'm talking here about corporate worship when God's people gather. Romans 12, I think, indicates that all of life is worship. You know, we are to yield our bodies our, as our uh, uh, proper sacrifice of worship and praise to the living God. And then Paul details that in terms of the use of the gifts that God gives us in the life of the church, in terms of acting towards one with love and humility, exercising hospitality in Romans 12, not taking vengeance on our enemies, and those sorts of things, personal enemies. Uh, all of life is encompassed in worship. But what I'm thinking about here specifically is what do God's people do when they gather? We could spend time, and I think this is important, we could spend time talking about that the heart of worship is the our hearts. God looks on the heart. What kind of hearts do we come with? It's all too easy for discussions of worship to get wrapped up in, the, in one sense, the externals, what we do. That's where I'm going to spend a little time. But critical is the heart. With what kind of heart do I come? Also critical is that ultimately worship is not about us. It's amazing to me that sometimes the discussion today gets so focused that it seems that this issue has been forgotten. Worship is about God. It's coming to adore Him. But having said all of that, what are the elements of worship? The Westminster Confession in chapter 21 lays them out this way, and this is the common pattern that you find in all of those areas, those places I touched on in, in a few minutes ago. There is prayer. As God's people gather together, they should pray. There is the reading of the Scriptures. God's holy word needs to be read. There needs to be the preaching of the word. One can argue, and I think rightly so, at the, at, in many respects, at the heart of Reformed thinking about worship, 
has been the preaching of the word. I've already mentioned this in some degree, and I'm not going to develop this in any more detail, but the preaching of the word. There is singing. This is where the issue of difference has come in the Reformed heritage. There have been those taking their lead, especially from uh, Geneva and Zurich, Calvin, Holdreich Zwingli, that primarily the vehicle for praise is to be the Psalter. And that prevailed. It prevailed in Presbyterian circles. There are still some Presbyterian denominations. I have some very good friends uh, in uh, Presbyterian denominational bodies where only the Psalter is sung. In the late 17th and early 18th centuries, there began to be a different way of reading certain texts in Scripture, the key text being Ephesians 5.19, that we are to sing uh, with join our hearts unto the Lord with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The Westminster Confession interprets psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs all to be three synonymous words, basically referring to psalms. And thus the the tradition that has prevailed in, um, in a large part of Presbyterian history of singing only the Psalter. In the late 17th century, a number of Congregationalists and Calvinistic Baptists began to, to read that, those, those words, hymns and spiritual songs, to mean hymns that were different from the Psalter. It would take us too far afield to track all of that. There was great controversy. Um, the key figure that uh, we sang the first hymn from, Isaac Watts, is part of that early days of arguing for the, the use of hymnody that is not only the Psalter in the worship of the church. And uh, I personally think uh, that the, the hymnody that we have been given uh, over the last 200 years or more, and in fact, going back to the early church, we, we sometimes sing hymns of Prudentius and Ambrose, early, early Christian authors, is a great, rich heritage. And uh, I do not think that the phrase in Ephesians 5.19, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, indicates that only the Psalter is to be sung and that we have a rich tradition. I could, I was, as I was preparing for today, I was thinking of spending a significant amount of time pleading for the retention of our hymnody. And uh, I'm thrilled you have a hymn book. Uh, I, have great cha- I've, I have great concerns about churches that have dispensed with hymnals. And the reason why hymn, the hymn books are great is because you can buy your own. You can have them in the house as part of family worship. That's another subject as well. Uh, you can uh, read them. They can become part of your life, of uh, your inner walk with God. You can meditate on the hymns. You can memorize them. If you only have them up on a screen once a week, you have to memorize them at that point. Otherwise, you don't have access to them the rest of the week. Well, unless you go on the internet and print them off and, and so on. And I have a great concern. I, I sometimes go to churches, and there's nothing sung older than 20 years ago. And um, I'm not of the opinion that all that was good was written 100 years ago. There are a number of, I think, uh, great hymn writers today. Whether their hymns will last, remains to be seen. But my great concern is we have junked 
many of many uh, in uh, the broader evangelical world, even some in the Reformed tradition, have junked the hymnody of the past. We have cut ourselves off from the churches of the uh, Church of the Ages, and uh, sometimes the only connect that men and women in uh, some of our congregations have with the past is the hymnal. It's that which brings them into touch with Wesley and Watts and Bunyan and uh, Francis Ridley Havigal and on and on and on. Um, so I could, we could spend a lot of time on that. What should we sing? How should we sing? But let me let those comments suffice. And then there's the, the administration of the sacraments, or as Baptists have referred to them as the ordinance, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then the Westminster Confession talks about religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, thanksgiving. And it's thinking here of days of fasting, days of thanksgiving. The question has been raised, is the Westminster Confession, chapter 21, meant to be exhaustive in listing the elements of worship? And that's been debated over the years. There are a number of things here that are not mentioned. There's no mention of receiving offerings, which I think is a part of New Testament worship. There's no mention here of reading a creedal statement, which I think is a, a good thing, confessing the faith. Um, but even so, there is a pattern here. This is the important thing. One could differ on details. There is a pattern here that prevailed among Reformed communities for close to 400 years. And the last 40 years or so has been dramatically broken. It's a pattern that the reformers felt went back to the synagogue worship of Jesus' day. And this, is, again, is a big issue. The early church, where did it draw its worship patterns from? The synagogue or the temple? I think it's evident. If you read through Paul's letters, the book of Acts, it's the synagogue. The simplicity of the synagogue worship with prayer, the reading of the scriptures, the preaching of the scriptures, and sung praise. And that has been the pattern, the larger pattern in the Reformed tradition. Now let me focus in the about 20, 25 minutes that remain on one element of worship, which also touches on what I have not been able to touch on in any detail, which is the great heritage we have of piety and spirituality, and it's the Lord's table. Now, I'm aware that when I, some of the remarks that I'm about to say might be a little controversial in one sense. And I want to deal with the issue that was controversial at the time of the Reformation, which is how is our Lord present at the table? And there has been a rich tradition in the Reformed communities down to roughly the year 1800, and then it was replaced by another tradition. And I'm going to outline this, and I want to, to recommend that the older view is the one we need to embrace. It gives a rich understanding of worship. And the reason why I, I think the Lord's Supper is a vital part of worship is because, well, the, the reason why I want to discuss the issue is because I think this has been a critical part of the worship of the church that has been a critical part of nurturing love for the Savior. That 
we in the last 150, 200 years seem to have forgotten in many respects. Well, let me jump into it. At the time of the Reformation, the Reformers were agreed that the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, that when the priest prayed over the bread and the wine, that the bread and the wine became the very body and blood of Christ, that that was wrong, that that was not biblical. That had led to certain abuses, namely the, pray, the adoration of the bread and the wine, of which there is no biblical, for which there is no biblical justification. The question, though, was that confronted the Reformers, how is Christ present at the table? Is he present at the table? If so, how? Three basic views were argued. There was Martin Luther's view. Of all the Reformers, Luther was probably the most conservative. And Luther's view was, while the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation is wrong, nonetheless, he said, when the, the minister officiating at the table prays for the bread and the wine, thanking God for, the, for what they represent, they actually are not transformed, but they now do contain the body and blood of Christ. So the bread is still bread, but it now contains the body of Christ. The, the, the wine is still wine, but it now contains the blood of Christ. And Luther defended his view by saying, well, did not the Lord say, this is my body, and we need to take literally that is. It's actually a view that in practice is not too dissimilar from the Roman view of transubstantiation. The Swiss reformer, who stands at one of the key fountainheads of the Reformed tradition and the Reformed faith, Holdreich Zwingli, disputed Luther on this. And Zwingli argued initially, no, the bread and the wine represent the body and blood of Christ. And the is there, this is my body, this is my blood, means stands for, represents. Luther and Zwingli met face-to-face -face in 1529, the only occasion that we know they met face-to-face -face at a place called Marburg. It was not a quiet meeting. Uh, Luther was not a quiet man. And whenever someone disagreed radically with him, he took a dim view of them. Uh, at some point in the, the, the meeting, it was known as the Colloquy of Marburg, they did sit face-to-face, -face, and uh, Luther at one point uh, said near the end of the discussion, look, uh, Zwingli, I'm fed up with your mathematics. This is, I take it plainly and literally, means is. And when Zwingli went to, to dispute, Luther's response was, look, the spirit in me does not recognize the spirit in you. In which case, he's basically saying, I don't think you're a Christian, Zwingli, on, because of this issue. Uh, now, Zwingli, it, there is some evidence that Zwingli attempted to come as far as he could to Luther's view. But eventually, there was a, a chasm there. And that was the key divide among the Reformed communities from the Lutheran communities. Zwingli's view eventually became known as the Zwinglian view or the memorial view. Is Christ present at the table? No, we are remembering. Now, cl clearly, the table is a place of remembrance. Uh, do this in remembrance of me in the Gospel of Luke. But is it more? Let me suggest that it's the third view, the view of John Calvin, and I hold it to be biblical, not because Calvin believed it, although I think he did a great job in ex explicating it, but because I think he did see in the table in the New Testament text, 
justification for holding the following view. Is the Lord physically present? No, of course not. And Calvin argued, I think rightly so, that if we take seriously the fact that our Lord is risen in a glorified humanity, that glorified humanity to be a genuine humanity and body is somewhere. It is not omnipresent. If it is omnipresent, it ceases to be a body, as we know a body. And so it can't be the case that every time a Lutheran service, and he's thinking of the Lutherans, is held in Germany, that the Lord's body and blood are there. It just can't be right. It, it destroys, it undermines the reality of the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Insofar as our Lord is God, he is omnipresent. Insofar as our Lord is still, a, and we glory in this, a glorified human being, that body, that glorified body that one day will return at the creation of the new heavens and the new earth is somewhere. And so Calvin said it, it makes no theological logical, or, or logical sense to argue for the omnipresence of Christ's body at all of the various churches where the Lord's table is being celebrated. On the other hand, he didn't feel Zwingli's view did justice to certain texts, in particular this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you have your Bibles, let me refer you to that. And 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 17 are the key verses, but I will read a couple before and a couple, of after, a couple after. I'll begin reading 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, and I will read down uh, to verse 21. My beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice the demons, not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Now, all of this is in a much larger context. 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10 have to do with the question, is it legitimate for us to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And in chapter 8, Paul says, you need to know that idols don't exist. The gods that the nations worship are figments of human imagination, products of human technology. They don't exist. And so if, a, if you go to someone's house or if you go to a restaurant, and restaurants in the ancient world existed, they were nearly always attached to temples. If you go to a restaurant and food is placed in front of you and it's just come out of the temple and it's been sacrificed to an idol, is that food polluted? No. Those idols don't exist. You can eat that food. Now, Paul does caution you need to give due observance to your brother who may feel that there's some pollution there and don't do something flagrantly in his face to cause him to stumble. But essentially, he says, that is, there's nothing wrong with eating food sacrificed to idols. 
Some of the Christians, though, in Corinth believed that one of the marks of their liberty was to actually go to pagan temples during the actual services and be present there. Paul turns to that issue in 1 Corinthians 10, and he hammers that view, not because the idols exist, but because there is something going on in pagan worship. When men and women gather to worship an idol or a God that is not the true and living God, there is something supernatural going on. There are demonic powers present. In other words, Paul says, you cannot go into a temple and sit in because you think the idol's nothing and therefore the, the whole thing's meaningless and think that there's no impact on you. You are sitting in the presence of demonic powers. That's what he's describing here. It's a, it's a, it's a sobering view of worship of other religions. A sobering view. Paul is not saying that there's nothing, no element of truth in these. Sometimes, because of common grace, other religions may have elements of truth. Muslims worship one God. But we need to realize the, the seriousness of what is happening in religious services of worship outside of the worship of the true God. Now Paul illustrates this, and that's what, he, what he's doing in verses 14 to 17. You need to flee idolatry. Have nothing to do with idol worship. Because when you are there, he's arguing, there are the presence of these demonic powers. And then he gives two examples. The second example is ancient Israel. When the high priest and the priests went into the temple, sacrificed the animals, and participated in the worship and ate some of that food sacrificed, they were in the presence of God. Now, remember what he's, the point he's illustrating. The point he's illustrating is, do not go into an idol worship. There are demons there. He gives two examples to show that there are, in context of worship, powers at work. Both of them are positive examples to refute the, the idea that you could go into a pagan temple and worship, or be involved there, and not be affected. The one is the, the worship of Israel in the Old Covenant. The second is Christian worship. Now let me suggest strongly that if you argue that 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, the cup of blessing we bless, is it not communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is not communion of the body of Christ. That if Christ is not present in some way at the table, Paul's argument falls to the ground. What he's trying to prove here is there is a presence of the divine at the table to refute the idea that you can go into a pagan temple and there be no presence of the demonic. This is the text that the Reformed tradition between the Reformation and 1800, and maybe later, but definitely 1800, came back again and again to argue Christ is present. How is he present? Well, Calvin said, it is a mystery. But pressed, he would argue, the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Christ, unites us with him. And it is his table. And we are in his presence. And we have communion with the living Christ. 
It is a rich view of the table. And I think it gave, it, gave, it, gave, it gave birth to a very rich spirituality, a very rich piety in which reformed believers saw their going and celebrating of the Lord's table as one of the highlights of their Christian lives. Now, I've got a lot more here than I, I'm going to be able to deliver. I have about, about 10 minutes left. And I would encourage you, first of all, if you want to, to track this, look at this, read the, first, read the Westminster Confession, chapter 29, art, uh, uh, sections 1 and 7. Sections 2 to 6 refute the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. Chap, sec, chap, sections 1 and 7 detail the rich view I've been talking about. Listen to section 7, Westminster Confession 29. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements, you're eating the outwardly, the bread and the wine, do then also inwardly, by faith, really and indeed, not carnally or corporally. It's, it's a real participation in Christ, but it's not physical. But spiritually, it's by the Spirit we fellowship with him. Receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ, being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet really spiritually present to the faith of believers. In the first paragraph, that's the seventh paragraph of chapter 29 of the Westminster Confession, in the first paragraph it says this. It gives five reasons for the table. Our Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. There are five reasons listed here as to why Christ instituted the table. First of all, the table is a vivid reminder to us of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. Secondly, participation in the table is a means of assurance. It enables us to more firmly grasp what Christ has done for us on the cross. Thirdly, as a, as a way of enabling us to grasp more firmly what Christ has done for us, it is the way of spiritual nourishment. The Reformed tradition has been a cross-centered tradition. As maturity in Christ does not mean we grow beyond the cross. We come back to the cross again and again. It is the foundation of our growth in Christ. Fourthly, the Lord's Supper is a place where we recommit our lives to Christ. I do think that certain Parts of the Reformed tradition have erred by allowing the revivalism of the 19th century in which the altar call was developed to impact them in this regard. The altar call is the place that many argue is a place of recommitment and a place of conversion. But in the Reformed tradition, the Lord's table is the place of recommitment. Fifthly, the Lord's table reminds us that we have an indissoluble bond between us and Christ, on the ultimately on the basis of the spirit that we were talking about. And also, it's a place of recommitment 
to one's fellow believers. Historically, and on this I don't think I would want to insist, historically, that was very evident because there was one cup and one loaf that was passed. In, the, in around 1900, a lot of Reformed congregations began to shift from the one cup to individual cups. Hygienic reasons. I would, want, want, I would not want to argue to go back to the one cup. But the one cup, in, in that one sense, but the one cup is a visible reminder. Very powerful. I remember very, very strongly uh, being in a, a church in, in Yorkshire, England, and uh, a Reformed Baptist church. And I had preached that, that, uh, that evening. And uh, I knew that they were having the Lord's table because the, the elements were there and the, the cloth. And imagine my surprise when they took the cloth off and there was one cup there. And I thought, uh-oh, they have to pass around the one cup. Now, my, my theological training was in an Anglican, evangelical Anglican seminary. So I, I'm used to the one cup, but the one cup in those circles was always made of silver there was always the cloth to wipe it. There was the wine, which formed an antiseptic. And uh, usually the minister in charge would turn the cup. And uh, all this is going through my mind. And I'm thinking, these are Baptists. Do they know that? And, and then it occurred to me, I was at the end of the first pew. And I'd get the cup first. So it, it's at all. Oh. <laughs> But the one cup is, is, was a precious reminder of the unity in Christ. But be that as it may, that is what the table is. It's, it's not just me and Jesus. It's a reminder that I am part of a body of believers. I have committed myself to them. The New Testament, by the way, knows of, of isolated believers. It doesn't know of isolated believers. Believers are parts of local bodies and churches. And these are the men and women I have committed myself to. And here at the table, I recommit myself in service and love to these men and women. Again, as I said, uh, there is much that I could have gone into. But I want to close with the testimony of a Reformed woman in the 18th century, a woman named Anne Dutton. And I don't expect you to know her. She's not well known. She wrote about 50 books most of them were print runs of about 100 copies. And today her books are very, very rare. And uh, she was married to a man named Mr. Cattle, who died in the year 1720 after about six years of marriage. And uh, she herself was born in 1692. She died in 1765. She then married another man, Benjamin Dutton, who was a preacher. Uh, started a little work at a place called Great Granston in Buckinghamshire, England, one of these picturesque little villages. You can still go there. You can see Ann Dutton's house. You can see the church. And God owned his ministry, and it grew to about 350 men and women regularly attending with children. And then in the 1740s, uh, George Whitfield asked him if he would come over to America to help him in his preaching schedule and also to sell books. He went. He returned on the vo uh, voyage home without Whitfield, and the ship foundered and he drowned at sea. And it's in those last 20 years of her life, widowed, that she began to write books. And one of them is on the Lord's Supper. And in the early part of the book, she deals with the, the verses I've just read, argues that 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, speaks of a spiritual uh, union with Christ that is at the, reaffirmed at the table, and Christ is present. 
She has a number of statements about the table that are quite dramatic in many ways. And uh, she could say this. In the Lord's Supper, the king is pleased to sit with us at his table. In fact, so highly can she pri- does she prize the table, she can say the celebration of the Lord's Supper admits believers into, and I, I'll, I'll repeat this sentence a second time, it admits believers into the nearest approach to his glorious self that we can make in an ordinance way on the earth, this side the presence of his glory in heaven. The Lord's Supper admits believers into the nearest approach to his great glorious self that we can make in an ordinance way on the earth, this side the presence of his glory in heaven. Not all Reformed believers would have agreed with her. They would have argued that in which God most manifests himself is the preaching of the word. I'm not sure I agree with her. But I do know the piety that it's coming out of. And it's one I recommend to you. That for her, the highlight, one of the great highlights of her Christian life was at the table. Where she remembered again what the Lord had done for her. And was drawn out in love for him. And the hunger and the longing, you can see it in her writings, that when she goes to the table, that she meets Christ. That he's real. That he's there in power and blessing. The Lord's Supper, she could say, is a royal banquet which infinite love have prepared. I have a minute or two. In the 1800s, this view was lost in many Reformed congregations and was replaced by the Zwinglian view that it is only a memorial that is going on there. There are a number of witnesses that stand against that view for the richer, older view. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, if you know any of his hymnody, a great uh, witness to the older view. In the 20th century, the, old, the, the, the newer Zwinglian view, in one sense, has continued. And I would plead that part of our great heritage in terms of worship and spirituality is the centrality of the table. Not displacing the word. It's both word and table that's so important in our growth as believers. Thank you for time that you have come and reflected together on some elements of our Reformed heritage. I trust this has encouraged you, been a time of encouragement, but also a time of causing you to recognize we have a rich heritage that we need to cherish, need to pass on. We need to know, cherish, and pass on to believers. Let me close with a word of prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you for this day. We bless you for the heritage that is ours by grace. We thank you for those who have gone before. We thank you for that which they have passed down to us. Our great prayer and desire is that we be found faithful, that we pass on what has been given to us, that we cherish it. And we pray that as we have thought here about worship, that you would... Make the worship of your church dear to our hearts, that in which we delight, that we might worship as our forebears did, in reverence and godly fear and in great joy. And specifically, as we have thought of the table, we thank you again for the sacrifice of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that though he was rich, yet became poor for our sakes. And though he was sinless, yet became sin, that we might become the righteousness of yourself in him. We thank you for the table, for the remembrance that it is, for the place of communion that it is, for what it has meant to your people in the past. Help us to cherish it. May it be a place for us of meeting afresh with you and of recommitment and again of cherishing that great salvation that is all of grace. Now we offer these prayers with thanksgiving for this day, forgiveness for any sin. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. This concludes our conference. For those of you who have come from other churches, we are so very glad that you're here. Uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's a delight to share this time with you. Um, if you're leaving, there's a receptacle near the door for your name tag, and if you forget, the buzzer will shock you as you leave. <laughs> CDs will be available. Uh, someone will be in the narthex to answer any questions you might have about ordering them. and. Uh, Dr. Haken, I know you haven't come for our applause. You've come here to serve the Lord. But I'd like to invite everyone who appreciated this to stand with me as we close and express our appreciation to our speaker. Thank you very much.